0: Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please find in yours, Revelation 19, the 19th chapter in the Revelation. I don't know if after all the bad news, after reading six times in chapter 18 the other week, where the whole unbelieving world is weeping, I don't know if after all the bad news from chapter 6 through 18, where the seven-year tribulation is unfolding with the seven seal judgments, the seven bowl judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, that there could be any better news than this morning's news for us to hear. Have you noticed over the last two weeks our state of mind here on earth after reading and learning all that happens during the tribulation Our state of mind here on earth is different than it will be when we all get to heaven. In Revelation 18, the rapture church, remember all born-again believers who have heard the one true gospel, who have repented and believed the gospel, I pray that you've heard the one true gospel. All those believers in the church have been in heaven since Revelation 4. And from chapter 6 through 19 is the seven-year tribulation, and in chapters 18 and 19, we find ourselves towards the very end of that seven-year period. Our state of mind here on earth is different. Some of you were sad the other week. Our state of mind here on earth is different than it will be when we all get to heaven, according to Revelation 18 and 20, you may remember we are rejoicing over their judgment. We're not sad, we're rejoicing. And in Revelation 19, we are praising God for it, and here's why. Revelation 18 and 20, God has pronounced judgment for you against her. He is judging this world for us. And when I say us, I mean all of God's redeemed people for all times. Believing Israel, the believing church, and the tribulation saints. Anything he does for us, we should praise him for it. Now for the good news we need to hear. This morning we're going to go to a wedding, and the whole church is invited. You ask where? Heaven. Heaven. And we're also invited to a marriage supper, a feast like no other feast. You ask where? The kingdom right here on planet Earth in the land of Israel, where all God's people, Israel, the church, and the tribulation saints are invited. Begin with me as I read two verses, one right after the other. Begin in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give, give the glory to him, For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now notice verse 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Christians throughout the years have been confused between the marriage of the bride, the church to the Lamb, verse 7, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 9. These are two different events that will take place at two different times in two different locations for two different groups of God's people. The marriage of the bride, the church to the lamb, verse 7, includes the church exclusively, now get this, in heaven. Location is key. The marriage supper of the lamb, verse 9, includes Israel, the church, and the tribulation saints right here on earth during the millennial kingdom. My job this morning is to prove my thesis. But first, since verses 7 and 9 are about marriage, let's talk about marriage. Marriage was the single greatest celebration and social event of the biblical world. The weddings of antiquity are of no comparison to the weddings we're accustomed to. Weddings in our day last about seven hours, give or take. Jewish weddings back in the days of our Lord sometimes would last for 30 days. And we arrive at the banquet hall around 5 p.m. for appetizers and beverages, followed by a nice meal, dancing and good music, and usually the night ends around midnight. This marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast during the Millennial Kingdom, are you ready? It's going to last for a thousand years. In both Testaments, Israel and the church are described in marital terms. Speaking of Israel, Isaiah 54 and 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife. Israel is like a wife. Speaking of the church, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 11 and 2, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Jesus is our husband, and and we have been betrothed to him to be a pure virgin. That is another way of saying a bride. Brides are to be virgins on their wedding day. Now, Jewish weddings, unlike ours, consisted of three distinct stages. Now, time will not allow for all the details and traditions, but here is the itinerary in a nutshell. Stage one begins with the betrothal period or arrangement period. We might refer to it as our engagement period. You may recall we learned from Mary and Joseph at Christmas time during stage one, they were considered husband and wife, even though stage two and three had yet to occur. Now, this period varied, but it usually lasted for a year. <clears throat> and during this time, the groom would go home to his father's house and begin building a house for his bride. Jesus said as much in John 14, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now listen, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is in heaven right now, and the church is in heaven with him in Revelation 4. Now that is the rapture, that is a time yet future, This is where the bride, the church, will be. Right now, we're in stage one. Paul wrote, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. The second stage of a wedding was the presentation, a time of festivities, just before the actual ceremony, before the vows were taken. And then the third stage was a wedding feast. Let's begin with stage one the betrothal period, where Paul wants to present us a pure virgin. According to Revelation 19 and 7, the bride has made herself ready. For 2,000 years and counting, the bride, the church, right here on planet Earth, right now, this morning, as we speak, we have been making ourselves ready to meet our husband. How does a believer make themselves ready for their wedding day in heaven? Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Her wedding gown of fine linen is described as the righteous acts. This speaks, in my humble opinion, to both salvation and sanctification, because the Bible knows nothing of one without the other. Salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved through faith, by grace, through faith. Salvation. But the very next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You cannot separate salvation from sanctification, nor can you separate Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 from Ephesians 2, 10. We are not saved by works, verses 8 and 9, but we are saved for good works, verse 10. Now, this teaches us something. In two words, it teaches us grace works. No no such thing as a salvation without sanctification, because remember, there's power in the gospel. It not only saves me from sin, past, present, and future, but it saves me from the way I live. And therefore, the salvation that sanctifies by God's grace ought to result in what? Righteous Acts, Revelation 19. Let's talk about this word for Acts. It is the word dikaiomah. Hebrews 9 and 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. Regulations is the word dikaioma, righteous acts worship God. What are these righteous acts? Luke 1 and 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Requirements is the word dikaioma, the requirement to obey the commandments is a reflection on how we walk, how we live, sanctification. Now look at verse 11. Next week we're going to look more carefully at this verse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now why did I place the second coming of Christ immediately after these thoughts concerning these righteous acts? Well, Peter does. 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is all about the judgment that is coming at the end of the tribulation. Since all these things, listen, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We ought to live in the light of his second coming. But we also ought to live in the light of our wedding day. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, when we live this life, righteous acts, sanctification, the good that we do, We bring that good with what we do with us to heaven, and we are rewarded for those righteous acts. Many are of the opinion that it is on this wedding day, before the second coming, uh, that we are dressed in white, which is representative by the righteous acts, a life lived, our sanctification. Which brings us to the marriage supper. Not to be confused with the marriage of the bride. Look at Revelation 19 and 9 again. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everything about the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 9, introduces us to the kingdom. And the kingdom introduces us to a wedding feast. Matthew 22 and 2. The kingdom may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Matthew 22 and 4, again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Who's going to be at the wedding feast? Where will the wedding feast be? We already know that our wedding day, verse 7, is in heaven exclusively for the church. We're dressed in fine linen, the white fine linen is representative of the righteous acts, the way we live this life here on earth before the rapture, before we died, before we entered heaven. But we must connect three dots if we're going to truly understand who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb to be distinguished from the wedding in verse seven. Dot number one resurrected bodies. Now you might be thinking, my, my goodness, what does what resurrected bodies have to do with anything? Give me some time. Dot number two, who's resurrected bodies? <clears throat> Dot number three, where is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Dot number one, resurrected bodies. Now why that subject? Well, I need you to put on your thinking caps with me and follow as closely as you can. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, absent from the body... That's our hands, our arms, our legs, absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. When we die, our bodies go in the ground. We are separated from these bodies. So where then are our spirits, our souls when we die? Hebrews 12 and 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Notice where the church is. It's in heaven. And the church has been accumulating its citizens in heaven since the day Stephen died. And to God, listen, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the church are in heaven. But look, they do not have the resurrected bodies yet. Absent from the body, our spirits are in heaven awaiting something. They're awaiting 1 Thessalonians 4 and 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now listen, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ are awaiting the trumpet, but not my spirit. My spirit is alive. And in heaven, absent from the body, my spirit is in heaven. It is our dead bodies that rise when that trumpet blows. And that event is still in the future for us. That's when the rapture occurs. That's when the entire church is in heaven. Revelation 4, after the church age is over and before the tribulation begins, Now, you may remember I asked the question, dot number one, resurrected body, but then I asked the question, whose resurrected bodies? Well, I just showed us the resurrected bodies of the church. What about Older Testament saints? Well, listen carefully to what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Now, Michael is the archangel specifically for Israel. That's who the sons of your people, that's who they are, Israel, will arise. Now listen, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. There's a clue. What clue? a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Jesus virtually said the same thing when describing the tribulation in Matthew 24 and 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. After the tribulation and before the second coming, the sons of your people, Daniel writes, many of those who sleep, in the dust of the ground, will awake these to everlasting life. Now what is in the dust of the ground? Their bodies. What about the spirits of all Jewish believers, Israel of old? Genesis 25 and 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. You see what the Jewish people believed when they died? They didn't just go into the ground and and they didn't believe in soul sleep. They believed they were gathered to their people. What was gathered to their people? Well, remember, Abraham went to Abraham's bosom. And last week we learned Abraham's bosom is a metaphor for heaven. But what went to heaven? Not their bodies. Genesis 50, 25, and 26, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. You put these verses together, Genesis 25 and 8, Genesis 50, 25, and 26, and here's what you have. When the Jewish people died, their bodies were buried but they believed they were gathered to their people. He wanted his bones carried to the promised land. What about his spirit? His spirit, like ours today when we die, was gathered to our people. Like all other Jewish believers, their bodies were in the dust of the ground waiting. Waiting for what? A time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. The tribulation. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. What about the tribulation saints? When do they receive their resurrected bodies? Well, we now know from Revelation 7, these tribulation saints who were killed are before the throne of God in heaven. What's before the throne of God in heaven? Well, look at Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years, the millennial kingdom, the wedding feast. John saw souls, not bodies, those who had been beheaded, tribulation saints that died. So what came to life? Well, not their spirits, not their souls. It's their bodies that come to life and are raised in verse, in verse 4. Now, why was it so critically important that we begin with dot number one and dot number two? A resurrected body and whose resurrected body. Well, remember, this marriage supper of the Lamb is a wedding feast in the kingdom. I want you to pay careful attention to what is absolutely necessary to attend this wedding feast in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 verses through 53, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, now watch this, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Those dead bodies that were diseased, decayed, and died are going to be raised with an imperishable body that will never be diseased, never decay, and never die again because that's what's necessary to inherit The kingdom. Dot number one, resurrected bodies. Dot number two, whose resurrected bodies? Luke 13, 28 and 29, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is not just Jacob but all of Israel. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. You see, Israel's is going to be there. Believing Israel is going to be there. Their bodies will come from east and west and from north and south. Why? Because the Jewish people have been scattered by God all over the world to the four corners of the earth. And listen, people who have died in faith, Jewish people who have died in faith, are buried everywhere. And God is going to raise those bodies at the end of the tribulation. And unite them with their souls and their spirits so that they can enter the kingdom and recline at the table. They will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Do Jewish people do when they recline? They eat. They drink. Matthew 26 and 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples you recall these words at the Lord's Supper, which we call communion, the Lord's Supper? Luke 22, 16 through 18, For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Dot number three, where is the kingdom? But we know dot number one, resurrected bodies. Dot number two, whose resurrected bodies? Israel, the church, tribulation saints. We know why resurrected bodies. You can't enter the kingdom. You won't come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we now know is in the kingdom, unless you have one. Do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples about for 40 days in Acts 1? the kingdom. And his disciples understood in Acts 1 and 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom will be in Israel, the promised land, the place where Joseph wanted his bones carried from Egypt to... So what have we learned? Well, I think we've learned if the bad news never comes, neither will the good news. I think we learned we should not be sad but glad because we are going to our wedding day to meet our husband, Jesus, the Lamb of God who died for us so we might enjoy his wedding feast in the kingdom. And we learned that we need to be presented as a pure virgin so we must begin to pursue those righteous acts of obedience to God's command, living our lives for Jesus. He died for us. And we learned the wedding between the bride and the lamb in verse 7 is the church in heaven exclusively. And we learned the marriage supper of the lamb, verse 9, the kingdom, the marriage feast, is all God's resurrected people bodily, Israel, the church, and the tribulation saints here on earth invited to the wedding feast. And why? All God's people are described in marital terms, all of them. Well, we come to that portion of our time where we wanna make sure that you know Jesus, that you know the gospel. We want you to be prepared for the events we learned about. We want you to escape the tribulation that is to come. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent means to change your mind about what you believe and how you behave. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, led a sinless life, died on a tree, rose from the the ground on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And he has ascended to the Father's right hand as Lord and God. It is by grace that we are saved and not by works. No amount of goodness can save you. James says if you keep the whole law and you stumble in one point, you are guilty of all. That means you got to be perfect. That's why Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What the law does is it shows how imperfect we are and how much we need a Savior. Jesus is your only hope. Jesus will save you from your sins. But repentance is also a change in behavior. You want to live for him who died for you. Grace works. There's power in the gospel. It transforms us, not only to change our mind about what we believe doctrinally, but it changes how I'm going to live my life emotionally. For God, to God be the glory. Great things he has done.